Good morning. Well, here we are, the first Sunday after Christmas, and we've got some super happy and uplifting readings to walk through today. It's great, though. This is wonderful because over the past month, everything we've been doing, everything about the church and our gatherings has been building towards Christmas Day, right? The birth of our Savior, the birth of Jesus. And I think a lot of times it's kind of easy that once Christmas Day hits and we get on the other side of Christmas, it's kind of just like a, I'm good. I made it. And now we move forward. But one of the things that, that I really hope we do now is we jump right back into Matthew. So we started this in the fall, and we're jumping right back into where we left off, is that it's not so much as a jarring movement from the Christmas season to this, uh, this sermon series that we're continuing, but we see it as a progression of what our Savior has come to do. This is a continuation of the story. Just because Christmas Day has passed doesn't mean that the coming of the Savior is over. The birth of Jesus did not signal the end of God's redemptive plan for the world. It, in fact, signaled the next step in what God was doing to continue to redeem his people. It's beautiful that way. God continues to move, and he continues to work throughout the scripture, and he continues to move, and he continues to work in our lives today. And so, we go back and just to get a little refresher about where we are in God's continual movement and redemption, uh, we're in Matthew 5. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' likely most well-known and most famous sermon that he gave. And so jumping back into the middle of it, it may be helpful to kind of see where we are in the sermon to help us get some good footing about what Jesus is really kind of doing right now. And so we get the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to open up to Matthew 5, we'll be in verse 20 to start out, but we're going to really kind of hammer down and be camping out in these verses. So if you want to mark it down, do whatever, need to take some notes, like this is a good time to, to turn to Matthew 5. And so the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, which the blessed are those who dot, 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 for they will dot, dot, dot. And so this whole section of the Beatitudes is great because it frames and kind of sets the foundation for the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by kind of redefining what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who, who this is for those believers. This is a thing where he's kind of framing this to understand who we are in God's kingdom, what it means to be a member, what being blessed really means. Because it's kind of like blessed are those who are poor, who are meek. The things that we often don't associate blessing with, Jesus is saying, but you're blessed because this is how I move through this. Because you are my child. Because I am your Savior. So Jesus has kind of redefined like what that means. And then in the next part, as, as he moves into the next part of the sermon, he goes in, in verse uh, 13, that you're salt and light. And so he then charges those who are members of his kingdom saying, hey, you're not only just members of the kingdom where you can passively sit here and just like take, take, take. You're to be ones that go out and are agents of change in the world, inciting change for the kingdom of God. You're to get up and you're to go. That's the, one of the blessings of being in the kingdom is that you're a part of what God is doing in this world. He says, go. And so some people hearing this, and maybe us today, 
would also be saying, so, so how is he saying all this? How is Jesus able to say these things, to teach these things with authority that nobody else has taught with before? And that's where he moves to the next section in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17, where he talks about, hey, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. Everything about them is pointed to him. That's the reason he's the savior. That's what uh, affirms that he is who he says he is. And that's where he draws his power and authority is that he is that one. That's who he is. And so that kind of brings us to the end of uh, verse, uh, this little section in verse 20, which is what really propels us to our reading today. Because he's going to go now and say, like, look, I've given you this stuff, and now I'm going to give you some real practical realities of what this means to live as members of this kingdom under the authority that I have now charged you with. And so he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he talks about righteousness to get ready to kind of do a compare and contrast of what Scripture says and what we've kind of interpreted it as. But as he does this, he kind of starts off by saying, look, you're never going to even enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is greater than that of these scribes and Pharisees. Now that kind of raises a really good question of, aren't the scribes and the Pharisees the guys who have spent their entire life learning the law, living by the law? This is what they do. This is what, I mean, they've given everything to do this. How am I supposed to be greater and more righteous, more in right standing before the Lord than these people who have given everything, that's all they do. Everything's geared towards doing that. And that's a really good question because I think what we need to do to really understand it is to take a step back in time to see, well, then what was the law really meant to do itself? What were these Pharisees and scribes doing with the law? Because this is going to help us understand why Jesus says what he does in a second. So if we go back and look at when the law was given, we have to take a little time travel back to Moses. Now, at this, the time of Moses, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were literally slaves, bound by chains and, and being abused and beaten. That's, who, that's God's people. That's where they were at. And for not anything that they did, not anything that they earned, God raises up Moses, he raises up Aaron, he raises up people to go into Egypt and set them free. They literally walk across dry land and on the Red Sea, the waters part, they walk across the dry land and are free. And it's after that they are free that Moses, uh, God gives Moses the law and God begins to un, uh, reveal the law to his people. Now, what I think is, um, is, is huge to note in this is, again, this is a, the progression is huge here. It's not that God, when the people were enslaved in Egypt, gave them the law and said, hey, if you do this, if you live by this, if you follow this and get whatever merit system, point system it is, then I will set you free and you will be good. Because if we think of it like that, the law then would almost be another type of slavery in trapping the people, right? It would be a balance which kind of put people in a box in which they have to live by. But what God did is he set his people free, literally sending them through the waters of the sea and gave them new life 
and dry land. So he gave them freedom and life and then gave them the law. And so the law was then given as a means not to re-enslave his people. God was not saying, hey, look, I took you out of this. Let me give you a new type of slavery that you're going to be living in for the rest of your life. It was a way of him saying, hey, now that you have freedom, let me sh- I'm going to tell you how to live into this life and freedom I've given you. This is how to live in freedom, not to earn that freedom. That's a huge difference of way of looking at the law, of understanding it. Because we see that God's heart for the law, the heart of the law was something that was meant to give life. We see here that uh, following the law of God was not supposed to like, and not meant to suck the life out of people. It's not meant to suck the life out of you. It's not supposed to kill you. The law of God is meant to give you life. It's life-giving. That's a completely different way of looking at it. The design of it is freedom. And so when we have that in view, that brings us to our passage today, where we see Jesus says this. He says, look, you've got to exceed the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. And then he says, but you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Look, this is what you've heard the law say. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that judgment would be both in the courts and the systems they have there. Like, you're going to be held accountable for your actions here. There's also a a sign of, like, there's eternal judgment in here. That we're going to be held accountable for those things. That we're liable to that judgment. And so Jesus continues and says, but I say to you this. And this is the start of six things where Jesus is going to say, look, you've heard it this way, but I'm going to tell you this. Where he's going to say, look, you've heard the law kind of only about murder. I'm going, to, I'm going to take this thing and we're going to go even deeper to see why this is the law. It says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He takes it a step further. What the Pharisees and scribes and what he's, uh, have done and what he's saying, you got to exceed this, is they've kind of taken the law and been like, look, this, it's only about murder. As long as you don't kill anybody, just don't kill. Don't murder. Don't take another one's life. But what, what Jesus does here is he says, look, it's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than that because the rules aren't just about rules, but the heart of the law is about the heart of God. It's not rules for rules' sake. The law is a means of life and not just another entrapment in which we kind of bound ourselves in. And the reason it's, it's about life is because we see here what, he, what Jesus describes is destructive power that sin has over us. He says sin isn't just murder, but we see it's everything else that leads to it. Everything else. If we are to be angry, with our brother, we're liable to judgment. And the judgment that he says there is the same word for judgment that he says that means murder. It's the same judgment. Whoever insults his brother, whoever calls someone you fool, we're liable to the same judgment. In this phrase, Jesus is putting these things on that same plane as murder. I think it's, a, it's pretty easy when I look at like the Ten Commandments, like it's, it's easy for us to kind of look at the Ten Commandments there and be like, all right, look, it's not that, like I'm doing pretty good, right? 
I haven't killed. I'm not like stealing. I'm not doing these things. I'm not, you know, it, we look at it and it's, it's kind of almost easy to look at me like, you know, I'm not doing too bad. But what we see, what Jesus says, is the heart behind the law is much deeper than that. Because if we look at our brothers and our sisters in that same light, at the way we treat them, the way we look at them, the anger we have, we've done the same thing. That sin is not just a matter of what I externally do in public and get convicted for, but it's the state of the heart that I have. It's a heart thing. And we have a heart problem. There's a heart sickness. Sin breaks who we are deeply, deeply. Sometimes we have enough self-control to control our actions, but we see that Jesus is going even deeper Murder is definitely still wrong, so don't hear me say that's not, we need to take that lightly. Like, we still don't need to murder. If anything, what it's do, he's doing is he's, he's elevating these other things. We're liable to that judgment. And like I said, it's super easy to kind of also look at some of this stuff and see it in other people, right? Oh, man, I know who needs to hear this one right now. You kind of nudge maybe your friend or not your spouse ever, right? You should probably be listening, But when Jesus here says everyone, he means everyone. So Maisan and I, we love like true crime murder podcast. Like we, whenever we're driving anywhere, we put those suckers on and like, I don't even want to get out of the car when we reach our destination because I'm like sucked into these things. And so it's like to live and die in LA and uh, uh, up and vanished, these things, like, they're so captivating, these true crimes. But we sit there and we listen to them, and I go, how in the world can someone get to that point? I can never understand how someone could ever get to the point in their life that they would go through such grisly and heinous crimes. And it's easy for me to do that. What's not easy is for me to look in the mirror and say, like, the way you yell at that person on the road the way you get angry about some of these people that write whatever is on the internet, the contempt that you have and the way it stirs your heart, it's hard for me to look in in the mirror and say, Jesus is saying you're the same. You're liable to the same judgment. So this past week, as as I've been kind of looking through this and, and just resting in this, it's been a really, really hard look in the mirror to see that I have an angrier heart than I ever would have realized. And even though violence may not be something that's externally expressed and things like that, there is a broken nature inside of me that is on that, that I'm liable to that same judgment, that same counsel. And what I often want to do is self-justify, make excuses, and push anything off and sit there and be held accountable for those things. And I think that's probably pretty indicative of where our culture is right now, right? Our culture's in a, a season of some anger, some frustration. All you have to do is log on to any website. It doesn't even matter what it is. I go to ESPN. I see the same thing. Nothing's safe from the anger, the hatred, the insults that we throw at one another. And we leave it unconfessed. And what we're doing in our anger and frustration is we're trying to point it out in someone else and say, you need, to be, you need to be righteous in my eyes. It's my righteousness that counts. It's my righteousness that needs to be justified. 
But in doing so, I, I see the, a brokenness inside of me that really, really needs some healing. I see some brokenness that it's sometimes hard for me to even admit that is there and that needs to be addressed. We're coming up on a season of life here in the United States of America uh, in the next little bit of time called election season. This is a season of time where I think that this may be super relevant for us. And my hope and prayer is that in these times of charged disagreements, that we take these words of Jesus seriously. Because one of the things that we see in this is that murder isn't, the, murder isn't where it ends, right? Murder is like the external expression of something deeper. Our anger, when we get road rage, that's an expression of something deeper inside of us. Our anger and insults are symptomatic of a deeper disorientation. Huge. They just, they're the symptoms of something else that's broken deep within us. Something that needs healing. And in this time of self-righteousness, we need some guidance. Scott McKnight, an author and theologian, writes this. When we're self-righteous, we feel oriented. Even when we're completely lost, we feel like we have a clear idea of what happened and what needs to be done now. But we're deluded. Anger deludes all of us. Isn't that where we are right now? I want to ask you, I'm going to be a little direct here. I want to ask you, where is this in your life? Where is this in your heart? Not, where, not necessarily what we see in other people. That's, that's the easy part, right? Where is this in you? Where is this in you? And where are we doing things like the Pharisees and scribes where we're kind of reinterpreting the law to be, well, at least I'm not murdering, so I'm good. I'm following the law to a T. But we see that the heart of the law is so much deeper than that. Where is this in each one of us? And in the midst of all this kind of reflecting and we kind of see the brokenness maybe illuminated in us, the good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just leave his people there to say like, you know what? You're worse than you thought, and good luck. He gives a remedy. He gives us the remedy. The remedy for sin of the broken heart is grace-given reconciliation. Our anger and insults, adding on to the, the slide that we have up there, our anger and insults are symptomatic of our deeper disorientation that is in need, desperate need, of reconciliation. So Jesus says in verse 23 here, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and to, at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your, your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, with your, the one accusing you, which is where we get even more defensive, right? When we're the ones being accused, come to terms quickly. Before anything else, he says, drop everything and go be reconciled. Now, I'm not saying, like, as we look at this and you like, I'm not telling you to just go ahead and get up right now and leave yet. But what we do see is that there's a sense of urgency that Jesus has for reconciliation, right? Jesus is elevating that sense of urgency to reconcile, that it needs to be healed. And he's not talking about just like, you know what? You can just step away. Just let it be. Just don't address it. 
be passive. Just let that sit there. Let that anger kind of like fester there or just like cut them out of your life. He's saying, no, you be the one. Even if someone's accusing you, you be the one to take the step to go for reconciliation. You go and go now. And that's a lot different than I think we probably think every day. The remedy, it's a little crazy, right? That the remedy is reconciliation to anger. Because you almost think like in some cases, like this is just going to make me more angry. Well, then maybe Jesus needs to keep doing a little more work. Maybe that's a good thing for us to see that that's where we would be in those situations. Because what Jesus is saying is like, look, these, some of these people that he's talking to will make the journey to the one altar at the one synagogue to lay their offerings before and their sacrifices you know, in the temple, right? Like, and he's saying, look, even if you came from who knows where, go. Go back. Reconcile with your brother. That's brother and sister. That's how important this is. That's how important. Now, what Jesus doesn't say here is say that all anger is ungodly. I want to clarify here. There's some anger that is justified before the Lord. We don't have time to go into all of those things, but there is a, a holy anger that even Jesus himself has and exhibits. And that's something like I would encourage you to go and study because if we keep going into that, we won't be here till tomorrow at least, but go and check because there is anger that's righteous, the anger against sin itself, the anger against the brokenness, but we see that that's not going to incite something that is going to destroy our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with others. That type of anger is going to draw us actually closer to the Lord and draw us closer to one another. It's going to have the effect of reconciliation. In Psalm 4, uh, David's speaking a, a little bit about that. He says, be angry and do not sin. He says, like, there's some of that. But he says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Look, you can be angry, but don't sin in this. And when you are, take this to Jesus. Take this to the Lord. Because these, all this stuff that builds in us is gonna manifest itself in some way, shape, or form. It's gonna come out. There's nothing that we can hide. There's nothing we can keep hidden. And so when David says stuff like offer right sacrifices to the Lord, so like how do, how do we do this? How do we start to realign ourselves in this reconciliation? We see stuff like Paul in Romans 12, 1, where he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We give ourselves to him. We take control out of our hands. One of the biggest steps in reconciliation is removing the fact that we are the ones that are righteous and just. It's only the Lord. It's only him. And this is a lifelong process. This is gonna be something that we work on forever, that God works on our hearts on forever. Because here's the thing, all this stuff with anger and murder and frustration and hurling insults at one another isn't just about us and other people. This is about us and the Lord. It's about us and God. It's always about him. And if we sit there and say, like, hey, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Come on, he's God. The great thing is that Jesus has set the, God has set the example himself, saying that he was the one who came down in the form of Jesus. He came down as Jesus. God made flesh. And guess what? He went himself 
to reconcile with his accuser, every one of us. He's done it himself. Jesus has shown us the way by setting the example for us and even doing it in the form of man, being beaten, bruised, insulted, and he stood firm. And even for us, the greatest accusers that there are, he came to reconcile us. And so that judgment that we are all in danger of facing, that fire of hell, he went and took upon himself on the cross as he took all of that for us. So while this may be one of those things that's difficult and hard, maybe one of those things that's a little bit uncomfortable, we have good news in Jesus Christ that he has come to redeem us first. And as we are redeemed people, we're able to then reconcile with one another. So as we come to, there's a point in the service that we're going to come to in just a moment that lays this out perfectly, that we will come together and confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Before we come to the table, before we give our offerings, we come and we go to the Lord and we reconcile. We ask for his forgiveness. And so I think that this helps. And then we come to the table, we offer our offerings, we give our lives to him, and we come and we feast with him and with one another. As we go forward, I think that one of the things we can tell that can help us in this to be what's, what's a good measuring stick? How can I be aware? Well, where we are with the Lord impacts where we are with one another. So I would go on a limb to say that if we're getting angry and frustrated, if we're having trouble with reconciliation, if we're having trouble even going to our accusers or anybody and wanting to take that step to reconcile, a good indicator may be that that may be an indication and a symptom of the fact that there's something off with us in our relationship with the Lord. And it may stem from the fact that we don't realize that we are ones who have been reconciled to him first. So my hope and prayer is that after today that our hearts are stirred a little bit. Our hearts are being challenged a little bit. That we see one another as those brothers and sisters that are in need of being reconciled. And that we see that all of us were able to do that because we have, God himself has reconciled us to him. Graciously, without merit, not because of how great we are, because of how great he is, because of his great love for us. This is what the gospel makes the gospel such good good, good news, and how the gospel is tied to everything, everything in our lives. Let us pray.